Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 33. I do have the full passage on the outline, the insert. We're well through half of this first book of the Bible. It's important to be rooted again. You know, we're in the life of Jacob, and we're at this pivotal moment of confrontation that's been brewing for some 20 years. Jacob swindled his brother and humiliated his brother and had to flee the promised land. The land was promised to his grandfather and then to his father and then to him, even despite the trickster and the really the conniver that Jacob was up to that point. So he flees to escape his brother Esau's just wrath and spends 20 years in exile. We've been looking at that time of exile. Now he's on his way back, but he must face Esau. So the confrontation is brewed to this point. Now, the greater context of the stories about the patriarchs, the historic accounts of these forefathers of the faith, they're found in the whole of the Bible's message. And one of the quickest ways to describe for someone who doesn't know the Bible well, if you're talking to someone who they'll, they'll tell some aspect, a, a narrative from the Bible, or they'll, they'll misunderstand where it fits, <clears throat> you can always be sure, and we find all of these in Genesis, but it's true of the whole Bible, the Scripture is about God's creation, it's about the fall and the effect that that has on God's creation, it's about God's redemption provided in Christ, in about eventual restoration. So think creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's a good way for all of us to think in our Bible reading and study. So when we read an episode, where does this fall in that, that continuum that God is working out? Well, creation's foundational. We spent the early weeks in Genesis. The, the way things are designed by God, um, not just the stuff, but the institutions like today, marriage. It's so important to understand what the design by the creator is for. But we also have to recognize because of the fall, everything is disordered and jumbled. And the struggles we have in this life, the struggles this world is having, is because of the entrance of sin and the fall of mankind. But in Genesis, we also learn that God has a plan for renewal and restoration. And it will come through redemption. The redemption will be provided by a second Adam, the new Adam. So he promises in Genesis 3 right after the first Adam falls, to send an eventual second Adam. And the Bible unfolds that, that drama of God bringing forth Messiah, the anointed one. Jacob is way down the line, 2,000 years before the time of Christ. And he's the third of the patriarchs, the so-called patriarchs of the faith. And his life gets more and more complex as it, un, as it unfolds. He's a dynamic individual. He's a complex individual too, just like every one of us. Yes, he comes to know God personally because God meets him at Bethel. Yes, he grows along the way in maturity. But yes, old Jacob is still there always struggling with the new Jacob. But just before this episode I'm about to read, he's terrified with the prospect of seeing his brother, yet he knows God has promised to bring him back to the promised land. But he has to face Esau. So God wrestles with him at Peniel just before this episode. It holds him to the point where he, where the, the match ends. And Jacob won't let go, but he's effectively lost because God touches his hip. It's a reminder that you struggle and you struggle, but ultimately God has the power just with a touch. It's to remind Jacob that his fear should not be in Esau. His fear and respect and reverence and submission should be to God. 
man, you, we don't fear man outside of our first fearing God. Then we understand how to interact with mankind. And this is yet another change point for Jacob. We even see in this episode, you remember, he sent gifts ahead to, to, to try to placate or appeal or placate or appease his brother. And then he sent his family ahead. Then he was going to come after. Now he goes ahead of his family after meeting God in that wrestling match. And now he's about to finally come face to face with Esau. Here as I read God's holy and inspired word, Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they, their, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. <clears throat> o oh Lord, your word is indeed a treasure. As we consider this passage, please give us your aid by the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. Please help us to notice the details of this passage, as well as its place in the overall unfolding of your sending the Messiah for us. We can see that you had Jacob on a path of spiritual maturity, but we can also see how, by your providence, that you were working in Esau's life too, 
sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think we would all agree that Jacob had some good reason to be really anxious, really nervous, really worried about Esau's approach. Jacob swindled and humiliated Esau twice. And as a grown man, he did the whole thing with putting on fur on his arms and tricked his father and stole the blessing from Esau. Now Esau has had 20 years to grow in rage. I'll bet you all know somebody that keeps bringing up something that happened 20 plus years ago. And it always affects the relationship in the present because of their lack of letting go of what happened in the past. They've been brewing over the years, simmering as it were. Certainly you can understand why Jacob would think this be true of his brother. In fact, he himself, he was preoccupied with the knowledge of having to face his brother eventually. We see this in the whole of his return. He's nonstop stressed out about all of this. And I think it's reasonable for us to understand why this would be the case. God was doing a work in Jacob's life to draw him to dependence. Making him feel desperate and scared and fearful was, is one of the many ways that God will draw us to trust in him. And this is what leads to the wrestling match that sets up Jacob for depending on God and realizing he should only fear God, really, not man. And this helps him now, with some courage now, go face Esau. Not at the back of the line, but at the front of the line now. Now, God is not only working in Jacob's life. Even though Esau is a man of the world, he's a carnal person, he's not a believer. Nevertheless, God in his providential protection of his people works in Esau's life and heart as well. He does this for us all the time, that he gives us favor with man even when we may be enemies to that worldview, to those values that a carnal person would have. God gives us favor in their presence, especially when they're in places of power. We see that happen here with Esau. God is not only working in Jacob, he is working in Esau. In fact, if you would pick out one person that was maybe more heroic in this story, you'd have to say it's Esau. He's the one that let go what happened in the past. Now, I initially named the sermon Restitution and Reconciliation, and I have to have it in by Wednesday. By Friday, I added two more R's. Reunion, Restitution, Reconciliation, and Return. Return back to the promised land. And we have a reunion here to begin. In between those is this restitution and reconciliation that unfolds between these two long-separated brothers. Jacob was right to seek this meeting with Esau. Jacob had been shown great grace by God. In fact, he says just that to Esau. This is why I'm giving you these gifts. God has shown me great grace. He's provided for all my needs, and I want to be gracious to you in response. When we've been shown great divine grace, we want to show that grace to others in our generosity of spirit, the way we're kind, the way we're humble, the way we give. Jacob displays this in his life, a representative of Yahweh, the forgiving Yahweh. He was to be a blessing to the nations. So he starts here with his brother Esau, the place where he knew he had the most conflict. One way this will teach us a lesson as believers living now 2,000 years on the other side of Christ. This was 2,000 years before Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ because we have received his grace in the gospel. As we believe on Christ and we are freed from our sins, the just desert of our sins, now we can serve him out of response to what he's shown us. We represent him to some degree. And this is really what you see unfolding in Jacob's life as he seeks to be at peace with his brother. 
we also should seek this kind of peace with each other and with those around us. This is the spirit of what Paul says to the Romans and to us. In Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's look at this reunion of these two brothers as it unfolds. And I want you first to see the humble posture both men take. Both men are given by God. They come seeking the other's well-being, and this sets up for a true reconciliation. So there's a humility that is behind all of this, and it's God-given. Jacob lifted up his eyes in verse 1, and he sees Esau coming, so he divides out the children in order. Now, I do want to make a special note as we look at the overall humility displayed here. There is this this tendency that's noted for Jacob to be favorable to, to Rachel and Joseph more than everyone else. You see that in the order, the servants first, and then the wives, and then Rachel and Joseph. Now, I only mention that because this is an important part of the narrative of Jacob's and his son's lives. We'll see this more next sermon in Genesis 34, what comes from this. But at this moment, let's focus more on this humble approach that Jacob takes with his brother. It says in verse 3, he himself went on before them. He gets out ahead of them now, putting himself in front, not as, as nervous as he was before, still nervous, no doubt, but he goes knowing that God is with him. He goes before, and he bows himself to the ground well before Esau gets to him seven times until he came near to his brother. His brother's coming, his, getting closer to him. Now, this is not groveling, though it seems like it might be. We know from some ancient texts that have been found that it was a, a common practice, a show of respect uh, for someone that was uh, elevated above you to bow seven times, this number seven. And you could tell that Jacob has instructed his family to prepare the same way when they meet Esau. But in verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Do you feel the relief? Even if you knew the story before, there's a relief you sense on Jacob's behalf. Even though we know um, I've come to this many times in going through it more slowly, trying to think of it with first ears, first eyes, seeing it with first eyes, I really sense the relief. Have you ever had something you got so stressed about? You're stressed, you're stressed, you're stressed, you're stressed, a doctor's appointment or a meeting with somebody or something that was coming, some date of reckoning you knew would come. And when the day actually came and the event actually occurred, it wasn't nearly as bad as you thought it might be. That's a bit of the sense no doubt Jacob had as he finds safety with Esau's response. Not just any response. Several commentators that I read compared the response of Esau to the response of the father and the prodigal son. Remember when the father saw his prodigal son coming home from a distance? He ran out and met him and just put out all uh, decorum and just jumped and grabbed him and hugged his neck and kissed him? That's what you have with Esau, looking forward to Jacob's return. He embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Incredible show of humility on both parts to come back, to confront, to deal with the past, send those gifts ahead, Jacob. But then Esau to put a past, put away the past and run up and hug his brother, his twin brother. Then Esau takes note of who's around Jacob. Look at verse five. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. I want you to notice 
the different Jacob we have coming back to the promised land from the one who snuck out in exile left. This Jacob recognizes it wasn't his manipulations, his stratagem, his trickery, or any of his wisdom that granted him the blessing of his whole household. It was surely a gift from God. So when Esau says, who are these with you? Jacob's answer is humble. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. He wants to place himself in service to Esau at this moment. This isn't a lifelong commitment to do whatever Esau wants. We see that clearly at the end of this. But he recognizes Esau's place, knows what he's done in the past, knows that Esau occupies this land now and has his own household. And he wants to come humbly and also state, it's God who's given me this blessing, you see. I don't come as a threat. I come as one who's been blessed by God. Then the servants drew near, verse 6, they and their children, they bowed down too. Leah likewise and her children drew and bowed down. At last, Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed down. Knowing that his issue was with God, not with Esau, Jacob could humble himself in this situation. He now walked with a limp. No way he could forget his confrontation with God. After receiving a new name, he was now Israel. He could be humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He exalts those. He lifts those who humble themselves. When we think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself humbling himself, certainly we can humble ourselves with one another and with others outside of the church even. Not with compromise. Again, we'll see that as the story unfolds. But on the base level, to live peaceably, be humble before people. The wrestling match with God is what set this whole humble exchange up. In fact, one commentator, Derek Kidner, notes that when Jacob met God in that wrestling match to the time he sees Esau, it's like one big continuum of an event that really crystallizes who God is in Jacob's life. Derek Kidner said, True to the biblical pattern, Jacob's vision was no escape from reality. He's talking about the wrestling match. His language shows that he saw the two encounters, the encounter with his Lord, the angel of the Lord, and the encounter with his brother as two levels of a single event. This, this being able to recognize that he's submissive to God and therefore can go through wherever God leads him. Jacob finally acts humbly instead of opportunistically at this moment for selfish gain. He's basically repudiating what he had done in the past. Now I want you to notice something that does not happen here. Do you notice... To Esau's credit, when they come up against, with each other, against each other, you might say, as it would feel like, Esau does not bring up the past. He does not say to Jacob, there you are, my lying, swindling, cheating brother. And they go right back 20 years. Jacob, although lesser of a charge, could have said, there you are, the one who threaten murder against your own, son, your own brother and cause me to go into exile for the last 20 years. None of that happened. They went right to the reconciliation that was necessary for these two brothers. Sometimes issues from the past have to be dealt with, no question. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. At some point, though, we have to move on from the past, and that's a choice to do so, or it will unfavorably mess and contort everything else going into the future. I grew up in a family on my father's side that could not or would not let past wrongs go or be forgotten. 
And there was an incident that I didn't come to learn about until I was in my later teens that led to why my family on that side was so disjointed. I grew up somewhat close to a few cousins, but my dad had eight siblings that made it to adulthood. He had, he had uh, 12 total, but only eight that went on to be married and have kids. And I never really understood why there was such division between, between my aunts and uncles. Uh, no one really told. My dad kind of kept it from me. He was third from the, young, the youngest, so he was kind of, kind of witnessed it unfold when he was growing up as well. Sometime before World War II, it's going to sound crazy. Like, I can't believe, I know. I'm sure none of you have anything like this in your family. So, but think about this for a moment. So it was about 1941. My dad was 10 years old. And the job situation in Dunmore, Pennsylvania was getting difficult because they were running, the, the coal mine they were at, they were going to shut down. And people were shuffling to try to find other jobs. My grandfather couldn't read or write in English in any, any way, so he was always trying to move to the next labor job. And the oldest brothers, who were in their early 20s, would help him find work, and they would find work and support the family. Well, they cobbled together whatever money they had and sent two of the older brothers up to western New York to try to find new work for all of them because there was word that there were steel mills there and such and so forth, especially as the war was starting to ramp up. And so the two brothers were supposed to go and come back within a week's time. It's not that far apart. But two months go by, and they're still not back. Three months go by, and they're still not back. Finally, they show back up. In the meantime, it had been determined by two of the older brothers who were still there. Again, my dad was only 10 at the time. He heard this later. It was determined that the brothers who went up there had taken money, additional money, not the money they were supposed to go just for travel, but more money actually stole it from the family out of a safe that was in the basement. They denied it, of course, but the proof was there. The money was gone, and they couldn't find any other, any other results from it. And for years, they denied that they did this. They all moved up to western New York. When they got there, there was a great division between the older siblings because they felt the two older brothers had cheated the family like this. And this went on for years. And as they got older and had their families, the two older brothers had their own life, and it was separated from some of the others. And every family gathering would be a re a mentioning of what had happened. Now, again, we were the youngest of all the cousins. And I didn't hear much of this and know what was going on until about my into my junior high years. And then I started noticing there was this real vendetta with some of, the, some of the siblings against the older ones. And it caused us all to grow up without really knowing any of our cousins, just a few. And it became uh, an argument every time the, the aunts and uncles would get together. They would argue about it. Even at funerals, there would be divisions in funerals over who was allowed to come and who was not allowed to come. All the way to adulthood, only in recent years, at age 51, talking to my cousins who are all older than me in their 60s, have we ever talked this all out and realized wh- why we didn't get to grow up together? So, if you want to hold on to stuff from the past, you will definitely cause reverberations through the, to the future. At some point, you've got to decide, I'm going to let this go. It's not worth what effect it'll have. I don't mean ignore it, especially as believers. This wasn't a believing situation where they're following Matthew 18. But among believers, in our families, as much as it is possible for us, let's live at peace with everyone and not let those kinds of things have such a radical effect on relationships into the future. They never stop having pain. I'm sure there are some here who need to move on from the past. You've addressed a wrong done to you. You've done all you can do to resolve it. You can't control someone else's demeanor or response, but it's time for you to lay it down and move forward to the best you can with reconciliation, however that may look. Jacob and Esau move on from the past. This does not mean that Jacob ignored 
how he wronged Esau. In fact, Jacob takes it upon himself to do as much as is in his power to provide restitution. He should pay back Jacob the blessing that he stole, or Esau the blessing that he stole. Now, Esau is a worldly man. He doesn't care about the eternal. Remember, he despised his birthright. He doesn't get the spiritual significance. But he took a huge loss on inheritance, losing the blessing. So Jacob is, in effect, trying to make that right. I'm going to give you back the blessing. He even uses that language when he describes it. He tries to right the wrong as much as it is possible for him. Look at verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all the company that I met? He's talking about the droves of gifts that came with his servants, three different waves of gifts to pay him, 550 animals. What do you send me all these these gifts for? And then Jacob says straightforwardly, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He knows that he has done wrong to his brother, and he wants to appease him. He's not going to hold anything back. He's just being honest. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. If you're not going to hold against me what's been done, if I have your favor, if you truly are accepting me, please take this gift. For I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept, notice the word, verse 11, accept my blessing that it is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. God has shown me grace. I want to be gracious to you. I want to give you back the blessing I stole from you. That's what I want to do. In this whole interchange, Esau, the way you're receiving me, the way you're accepting me, the way you're allowing for this to happen, it's like I'm seeing the face of God. I'm seeing the grace of God. I'm seeing God's work in this relationship. When I see you and your response, I know God is with us, knows with this situation. That's what he is in essence saying when he speaks those words. In verse 10, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. He had just seen the face of God in his wrestling match. Now he's seeing the face of God in this reconciliation because Esau has given him a hand of peace. I want you to notice how generous Jacob is in his restitution. Here's the, here's the story. Here's how it relates. If you have been met by the grace of God in Christ, you will be very giving. Giving of yourself, giving of your stuff. You will, you'll know it's all from God's hand, so you'll have no trouble being giving towards others. Uh, the person who's stingy probably doesn't understand the grace of God, understand the full weight of what it is. And this is now, there's no doubt Jacob had a conscience about this because he knew how bad he swindled him. But nevertheless, he does not skimp in his generosity. And he doesn't give it just because he's giving it to Esau. He's giving it because God gave to him. It's like when he gives to Esau, it's a way of giving back to God. God gives to you whatever he's given you. And as you give it to others, then you are like the hand of God to them, the face of God to them. Esau's anger was always in Jacob's mind. And now finally, finally, he's overjoyed that they are restored or they are now reunited. It reminds me a little bit of the same reaction that Zacchaeus in the New Testament had. You remember the Zacchaeus story? Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a chief tax collector. And tax collectors in the Roman Empire, especially in in the province of Judea, were Jewish, but they were taking money from the Jewish occupants of the Roman Empire, and then extorting some money for themselves. 
And so no one looked at the tax collectors living in Judea with a favorable eye. In fact, they really wanted to get Zacchaeus. He was hated because he had cheated so many people. Cheated him. But then he heard Jesus is coming, and he wanted forgiveness. He heard what Je- who Jesus was. And it says in Luke chapter 19, seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was of small stature, he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house. He knew his name. He knew who he was. He knew what he was seeking. And Zacchaeus, here, Jesus knows me. I know Jesus. I can see him. And he's wanting me to come with him, or he wants to come to my house. Zacchaeus senses the forgiveness of God in Christ on that, at that moment. He recognizes he's found what he's been looking for. But when the people saw it, they grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. They correctly understand who Zacchaeus is, but they incorrectly misunderstand who Jesus is. Then what did Zacchaeus do when he gets to the house and recognizes Jesus' reception of him? He says, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I want to make restitution. I want to give as you have given to me. He's not doing it to get saved. He's doing it because he was saved. Jacob wants to give now to Esau in a way he did not want to give to anybody 20 years before. He only wanted to steal then. Now he wants to give because of the grace that God had shown him. That's what Zacchaeus' attitude was like when he wanted to give as a result of Jesus' acceptance of him. I love what Jesus says. Salvation has come to this house. How do I know? Because I see what he's doing. Not because of what he's doing. I see what he's doing. He's a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Reunion, restitution, and reconciliation. But there's still the matter of Jacob's return now to the promised land. God said, I will bring you back. Now he's on the cusp. But one last hurdle to get over. It's true that they were, they were reconciled. But it's not true that God would want him to align himself closely with Esau going forward. It may seem at the moment the feelings were good, they were happy, but they didn't get along great before this. They're different people. But Esau, filled with these emotions, says, hey, let me show you into the land. And of course, he lives south. Jacob needed to go north. So what transpires here is a little bit of the old Jacob's way of talking, but it's also just the way they talked, trying to be polite and say, no, I'm going my way. It doesn't make sense for me to go with you, Esau. I'm going my, we've got this worked out, but I need to go this way because God's called me. Here's the point. It's true we should try to live peaceably, but we should not compromise and get too closely yoked, especially with unbelief as you see it unfold in this story. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, verse 12, and I'll go ahead of you. I'll lead you in. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are care to me. You know I can't move at the pace you're moving. You have 400 men. You can move quickly. We can't go fast. We're not, he should have just said, I'm not going that way. But this is what he says. If they're driven too hard for one day, the flocks will die. Instead, you pass ahead, I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. It's hard to say whether he really planned to see Esau again. Maybe he did. We don't know. He's not being sneaky so much as politely saying, thanks, but I'm going to go. This is where we part ways. 
But Esau presses a little harder, I think, to really ascertain what is Jacob's mind about this. So Esau says, verse 15, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me, just for safety and travel. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Just please, let me do as I'm suggesting. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. He resists aligning too closely with Esau. Esau was not a man of faith in God. It seems uncomfortable a bit. But you know, you've seen these kinds of things probably in your own life. You mean well, it's a true and genuine reconciliation, but you're not going to lock hands now. Maybe some of you have had the fortune of going to an old fam- uh, uh, a high school reunion maybe. Remember the 10 and the 20-year reunion. The fur- further you get out, you grow more mature, and so you have more in common sometimes with people as you get older, some experiences, and you meet each other, and you forgot how you got along 20 years ago. But at the moment you're at the reunion, everybody's happy. And we're smiling, shaking hands, and as we depart, we're like, hey, we got to get together sometime. Are you really going to get together? Is it realistic? At the moment, you know, the feelings are good, but long term, it doesn't really make sense. There's not going to be the, that much integration that can happen because you both have your own lives. That's essentially what unfolds here. But what's at stake is the principle that Jacob needs to follow God's direction, not Esau, to Moab. Remember, God promised in Genesis 28, I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And Jacob said, if you bring me back to this land, you will be my God. Of course, now he's back in the land. He's crossed over. He's into the promised land. In Genesis 31, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. That would be Bethel. That's where he needs to head. Kidner says, well, the very warmth of the welcome the two brothers had did bring a new danger with it, a false partnership and a consequent diversion to God's plan for him. You follow that? So while keeping peace also There's a certain distance that has to be, you're not to be unequally yoked in this way, especially with unbelievers as it unfolds here in this story. Jacob knows his covenantal role and he goes the other direction. However, there's always a however with Jacob, always. And by the way, there's always a however with Tony. Lots of spiritual growth the Lord's worked in my life and in your life. I've seen it over the years, but a lot more to be done. There's still these inconsistencies in my life. Inconsistencies, I'm sure, in your own that frustrate you. You know better. You know you're in Christ. You trust. You see growth. You're not who you were, just like that opening hymn, not who we will be. But still, these things come up and they keep us humble. And we see it in Jacob's life, and it's going to cost him. In verse 17, Jacob journeyed to Succoth. That's 20 miles short of where he needed to be. He built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. I don't know if he just thought, well, I like it better here. I don't need to go all the way to Bethel. I'll get to Bethel, but let's settle here. Now, 20 miles for you and I is no big deal. That's Lee Summit. That's 25 minutes on a Sunday morning, 35 in a regular day. 20 miles in these days on walking, that's, that's days away. So it's quite a distance. And then it says, furthermore, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which was close to where he was. It's in the land of Canaan, so it's in the promised land. Okay, that's close enough. On his way from Padan Aram, he camped before the city. Then, as he's there a little bit, he finds out who's who, and he buys some land there, which is profound, because remember, the only land any Israelite owned was the land that Abraham had for a grave. Now there's more land being bought, but it's not where he was supposed to go, ultimately. 
Nevertheless, he buys some land from the sons of Hamor. He he builds a household for himself there. And then he erects an altar to make sure that everyone knows that he is Israel now. Jacob, who is now Israel. And he calls it El Elohe Israel, which means the mighty God is the God of Israel. It's a statement. He believes he's doing well, but he has not followed closely what God has told him to do. Yes, he resists coming under Esau's thumb. That's good. He did not compromise. He resists going to Esau's home and assimilating into Esau's culture. But he doesn't follow through with all his actions. He doesn't go to Bethel. In fact, he spends 10 years there. His sons will grow up in Shechem, not where his ancestors are from directly, not Bethel where God told him to go. He'll spend 10 years. So think about it. If Dinah's the youngest, seven-year-old, well, the youngest daughter, seven years old, she's going to live up to 17 or 18 in that place, not in Bethel. And the sons will all grow up into manhood. Some of them are already older. This will profoundly impact the way they look at the world. These are shaping influences that could have been avoided had he followed through to go to Bethel. But he didn't. Nevertheless, we still have before us this final meeting of Jacob and Esau that the scriptures record. There is one other. At the funeral of Isaac, they two come together and bury their father. But we have no other record of them interacting. The account of their reconciliation provides a reminder to us about living peaceably with others, especially as recipients of God's grace, always keeping in mind the need to keep true to what God's word says wherever we find ourselves with and whoever we are with. Jacob, as a man who God knew, was responsible, responsible to be humble in this world, humble towards others, and to act graciously. This is why the words of Paul once again do us well. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, your word has a dynamic way of speaking to our immediate situations. Each of us can find application of truth in what we have read for our own lives. Lord, where there may be broken relationships among us or connected to us, please give us the grace of your Holy Spirit to seek out reconciliation as much as it lies within our power. Please give us a spirit of humility as we approach others and with whom we need reconciliation and restoration. Lord, at the same time, give us wisdom to navigate this world so that we are loyal to your word and faithful to obey what you tell us to do. Help us to lead the way, forgiving others as we have been forgiven in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by turning to 534. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of O for a closer walk with God as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table.